Julia and Justin and Dan and others too. I don't have my glasses on. So. That's so if you're sleeping in the back, I won't feel offended because I won't know. Um, if one of the ushers could get me a glass of water when you get a chance, I think I probably will need that by the time we're done this morning. So Isaiah 46, if you could open your Bibles there, page 518, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. This fall, we're gearing up for a process of assessing where we're at as a church. And we're going to be seeking God's vision and direction for our future as a church. And this past week, our church leaders had a conference call with one potential facilitator who might help us to do this. And next Thursday, we'll have another conference call with another one. And uh, please pray that God guides us into who might be best suited to work with us on this. Um, we hope to have a recommendation for the forum on December 19th. The forum's our congregational meeting, and hopefully we'll have some ideas by then. We're working toward that goal. In the past couple of months, we've already begun um, engaging in the first stage of this four-stage process that we're going through. We've been investigating together what context God has put us in and what we can do to more effectively minister and reach out in the 21st century. Our second stage will then involve assessing our own internal strengths and weaknesses as a church. And then our third stage will involve seeking God for his specific vision and uh, direction for us as a church in the future as we go forward. And then finally, fourthly, uh, we'll need to develop a plan to carry that vision and direction out. So that's what the roadmap may look like as we go ahead. And this whole process will involve lots of prayer and lots of conversations and some research, some meetings, some planning. But I want to say today that far and away the most important factor which will determine whether we're successful in moving forward as a church will have less to do with data or strategizing or consultants or planning processes and more to do with whether God is among us and God is blessing us. And with that in mind, I invite you to look at Isaiah 46. Today's the first Sunday at Advent, as we've remembered, the season which begins the Christian year. Advent means coming, and during Advent we prepare our hearts for the coming of the King, both as we prepare to remember His first coming 2,000 years ago at Christmas, and also as we prepare to welcome Him at His second coming, whenever He comes to complete the work of redeeming and restoring the world he made and died to save. And so at Advent, we say to one another in the words of the famous carol by Isaac Watts, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And so this morning as we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent and as we uh, gear up, for the process that we'll be going through in the new year, let's let Isaiah help our hearts to prepare him room. And I've chosen Isaiah 46 to help us do that for three reasons. First, because the text originally scheduled for today wasn't particularly an Advent text. Second, because we're going to be in Isaiah for a good part of the next three months. And third, because this text from Isaiah is a powerful text about idolatry. Idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of those things which gain a place in our hearts 
instead of the true and living God who came to us in Bethlehem's manger. Or in the words of the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, idolatry is simply God and. God and. And if we're going to move forward as a church into everything that God has for us, then we're going to have to face the issue of idolatry. Of our idolatry. Henry Martin was an English missionary to India in the early 1800s, and when he arrived in India, he, he saw all the, the idolatry there, and he's reported to have said, I could not bear to live if Jesus was always this dishonored. It would be hell on earth to me. And maybe you, like I, have had that, uh, an experience similar to that, where you visited another culture or another religion where other gods or statues were being honored, and it grieved your soul deeply. But our culture is just as idolatrous. It's just that we're so used to it that we've become desensitized to the idols that are worshipped all around us. In fact, more than desensitized, in many cases, we've actually accommodated and joined in. Well, that was certainly the situation that the Jewish people found themselves in the time that Isaiah is addressing in Isaiah 46. Isaiah was speaking to God's people in exile. Years before the empire of Babylon had come to Judea and Jerusalem and had conquered and had carted off God's people who were living there. And, and Babylon had resettled them in Babylon, a pagan place with many false religions, many idols. And God's people now, as we get to Isaiah 46, they've been in exile for some uh, nearly 40 or 70 years. And, and now Isaiah has begun proclaiming good news that God is about to save his people, to bring them back from exile, back to their own land. And this good news begins in Isaiah 40 with the famous words that the gospel writers pick up in relation to John the Baptist. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is coming to save his people, prepare the way for him, let every heart prepare him room. But as Isaiah continues in chapters 40 through 54, an argument begins to ensue between God and his people about this salvation that Isaiah has begun proclaiming. God's people don't trust that God will come through to him or come through for them. After all, where's he been all these years that they've been in exile? And God's people don't like the way that God's proposing to save them. He intends to use the notorious pagan king Cyrus the Persian to save them, and they don't think that's right. And, and so you can hear this argument brewing in verses like Isaiah 40, 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? And in Isaiah 45, 9-10, Woe to those who quarrel with their Maker! Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does the work say, the potter has no hands? And Isaiah 48, 5 and 6. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say, my images brought them about. My wooden image and gold or metal God ordained them. You have heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? God says to his people. And then also Isaiah 49, 14 and 15. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. 
Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? So if you read through Isaiah, you'll see this argument continuing back and forth between God and the people. Mostly you get God's side of the argument, but he's clearly arguing with them and uh, they're arguing with him. That part's just not in the Bible. And, and you notice that God is arguing there not only with his people, but also with their idols. Evidently, many among God's people had, had given up on their God and they were serving the idols and the false gods of Babylon and the other pagan peoples around them. And so as you read Isaiah, it starts to feel like a political campaign. God is campaigning for the allegiance and the affection of his people over against other candidates, idols and false gods. And that's what we have in Isaiah 46. It's a sort of campaign speech. A speech in which God makes fun, as some politicians were doing in the recent cycle of elections, he makes fun of his two contenders, his competition, Bel and Nebo, the two leading gods of Babylon. God is trying to win back the hearts of his people in this speech, and the key question in the whole speech is found in verse 5. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? The key word is compare. God is inviting his people to compare him, the living God, to the false idols and to decide for themselves who comes out on top. Verse 1 mentions God's competition. Bel was a nickname for Marduk, the, the top god in Babylonian religion. And Nebo was a close second. His name, you might have heard, it's used in names like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And both of these gods were worshipped by means of idols, large gold statues which were not exactly equated with the gods, but which were believed to house the gods. The statues housed the gods. You worshipped the god by worshipping the idol which the god inhabited. And as you read this chapter in Isaiah 46, I picture these idols, Bel and Nebo, swaying and tottering like Bobo dolls. You remember Bobo dolls? You punch them and they go down and they bounce back up. That's what I picture here. These, gods are, these idols are evidently in a wagon and they're being borne along by beasts of burden, by, by cattle and, and, or donkeys. And you see as you read this chapter that the gods are in retreat. Babylon is about to be conquered and so the idols are being evacuated. But it's not going so well. The beasts of burden get tired from their heavy load and the idols sway and they totter on the bumpy roads in these wagons. And Isaiah says in reality it's the gods themselves who are stooping and bowing down in defeat. In their impotent weakness, they're, 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 uh, they're tottering before the plans of the living and powerful God who has sent Cyrus the Persian to conquer their Babylon. You see, each nation had their own gods, and, and the gods were supposed to protect the people. But, but Babylon's gods are, are, are no help in, in defending the Babylonians here. In fact, these gods can't even save their own idols. So the people who the gods are supposed to be protecting have to try to save the gods' idols. But conquered and vanquished, both people and idols go off into captivity. These idols are no help, God says. They're, they're a burden. They're a burden who are hard to carry. Compare them, God says, to me. Verses 3 to 5. Listen to me, 
O house of Jacob, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hair, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. What a contrast. The idols are, are burdens that we have to carry. But the true God longs to carry us and invites us to lay our burdens on him. What is an idol after all? Well, if you... Read verses 6 to 8. They reflect on this. It's something you pay money for, often a good deal of money. Craftsmen and engineers and technicians fashion it. And then you have to carry it. You have to transport it. And, and then you set it in its place. And there it stands. And it can't move. Idols are passive. Idols are helpless. As I heard one pastor put it, idols have no ears to hear your cries. They have no eyes to see your troubles or your needs. They have no arms to hold you when you hurt. They have no strength to help you or to defend you. They have no feet to rush to your aid when you're in trouble. So it's one thing to talk about idols in another culture, whether it be India or Babylon, but what about the idols in our own? After all, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, for instance, that greed is idolatry. Because greed is about God and. And our culture is full of God ands. Often just ands. Forget about God. I need this and this and this and this. I remember when we got our first digital camera a number of years back. I was so excited about it. It would be a fun toy. And it would capture all these great memories we were making out on the West Coast. But then the burdens began. The, the 16 megabyte memory card that it came with filled up quickly. And so we had to go out and buy a bigger memory card. And it needed batteries. And it chewed through regular batteries. So we bought rechargeable batteries. But we had to keep track now of these rechargeables and make sure they were charged when we needed them because it seemed that they never were. And then there was the software we had to load on our computer, which periodically would have these updates that needed to be done. And then we needed a filing system to keep track of all these digital photos we took so we could find the right one when we needed it. And we had to remember to get prints of the photos we liked. We're still catching up on that, actually. And to find a good print service. And, and uh, to, to get a good deal, you had to buy like 500 prints, and then you felt worried about using them all up so you didn't lose your money. And then there were certain pictures that you, you, uh, you wanted right away, and so you had to buy photo paper and, and figure out how to get that to go through your printer. Are we the only ones that... that... Um, and after a while, it felt like this digital camera was a little pet or something that I had to take care of. It, it became a lot of work and a lot of worry, a burden. More things to buy, more things to learn, more things to keep track of, more things to figure out. As if life wasn't already busy and complicated enough. This little thing was saying, feed me, take care of me, help me. Sure, it preserved some happy memories and it allowed us to share them with friends and family. But the camera did nothing to make us more content or more happy or more peaceful, or more loved, or more fulfilled. 
Instead, it made our lives a little more stressed, a little more busy, a little more tired. And multiply that by all the other gadgets in the modern house. Now, I share this not to suggest that digital cameras or any other gadget for that matter is inherently bad or evil, but rather as an illustration of how things can become idols which can become burdens for us to carry. While the true God wants to carry us and our burdens. So, ameners and hallelujahers, and those of you who are too reserved to say the words like that, as we gear up for another Christmas shopping season, are you, gonna, are you looking for more burdens to carry? Or are you in need of someone strong to carry you? Now here's my concern. Before I moved to Westchester County, I had never lived in a place with so many strained and unhappy and broken marriages and so much cancer and other serious health concerns and so much anxiety and stress and loneliness and depression and so little fun and so little celebration and so little friendship. I've also observed that people around here are driven to succeed and they spend long hours at work and they regularly manage to say no to their spouses and to their kids and to their friends and to God, but they can't seem to say no to their employers. They find time to surf the net and to watch TV and to attend a show, but they struggle to find time for meaningful relationships and for time with God to grow in their faith. And they make sure their kids get the best education possible and lots of other enriching activities, but, but they seldom go the extra mile to develop their kids' characters and morals and spirits. And it's easy to look out on our culture and say, well, people are lost. They don't know God. Uh, they're running after other priorities and other gods. That's why. But the reality is that all of these things are true inside the church as well as outside. Wouldn't it be great if the churches in Westchester County were lights shining brightly? Countercultural communities showing and giving a taste of another way to live. But too often instead we, we to too large an extent, reflect the culture we live in. Too often, instead of influencing the culture, it's the culture which is influencing us. Too often, instead of us calling people away from idols to serve the true and living God, it's we who are turning from the true and living God to serve idols. Brendan Manning, who's pastor and, and preacher and wrote the, the excellent book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, has this to say. He says, when we give anything more priority than we give to God, we commit idolatry. Thus, we all commit idolatry countless times every day. John Calvin, I think it was, says, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. But don't just take it from us preachers. Recently, the Vancouver Sun newspaper published an editorial in which it recognized, listen to this, for some, shopping is practically a secular religion. We worship our things. 
Watch a music video and you'll see jewelry and cars become objects of veneration. And then listen to this. People need to be careful in what they worship, lest they become what they worship. And that's in a very secular liberal newspaper. So what are you carrying? What has become a burden to you and to your family? To what are you devoting your time, your energy, your passion, your devotion and trust, your money? And truth be told, it's not carrying you, but you're carrying it, and it's become a burden. Listen to the words of Isaiah again, verse 5. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? Listen to me, house of Jacob, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he, I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. So as a church, we have some choices to make. God will never be able to lead us forward and to make us vibrant and full of life unless we first lay down our idols. Our idols of materialism, our idols of career advancement, our idols of raising successful, talented children, our idols of self-fulfillment, self-determination, individual freedom and rights. Our commitment to, to these idols and, and, and to others are deeply hurting our spouses. And they're straining our marriages in this church. Husbands especially, do you know that there are a lot of deeply hurting, lonely wives in this congregation? Our commitment to these idols is also causing us to raise children who, while they may be successful people, they... Um, are not necessarily going to be good people or wise people or godly people. Now, I realize it takes a lot more than trusting God and putting away idols to determine how our kids turn out, but it's sure a big start. Our commitment to these idols is also causing us to be stressed and lonely and unfulfilled and empty inside. And as long as these things are the case, as long as our lives are not that different from the lives of those around us, do we really have any good news to share with anyone else? And how can we expect God to bless us when we're running after other gods? Pastor and author John Piper writes, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetites for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime drivel of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. They're not vices. These are gifts of God. 
They're your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. Every once in a while, one of my children thinks that they're bigger than they actually are. And so they try to carry a big suitcase to help out or, or to carry a heavy bag of groceries. And, and they struggle and they heave, but eventually the, the burden becomes too much. And, and sometimes by that time they're in tears with frustration. And, and so what do I do? I go over and I pick up their burden and often I pick them up too. And I carry them. And that's what God wants to do for us. But it's scary to give up our idols. After all, we depend on them. We've built our identity around them. They help us out. They keep us safe. They, they fill a need, at least to some extent. They help us get by. What if we drop them and die? God doesn't come through to, to help us? What if we're left stranded? Well, a group of botanists went on an expedition in a hard-to-reach location in the Alps. And they were searching for new varieties of flowers. And, and one day, as a scientist uh, looked through his binoculars, he saw a beautiful, rare species growing at the bottom of a deep ravine. And, and to reach it, someone would have to be lowered into that gorge. And uh, noticing a local youngster standing nearby, the man asked if he would help them to get the flower. And the boy was told that a rope would be tied around his waist and the men would then lower him down to the floor of the canyon. And the boy was excited and yet apprehensive about this adventure and, and so he peered thoughtfully into the chasm. And then he said, wait, I'll be back. And off he dashed. And they wondered where he was going, but he returned several minutes later and he was accompanied by an older man. And approaching the head botanist, the boy said, I'll go over the cliff now and get your, father, your flower for you, but this man has to hold the rope. He's my dad. He's my dad. Do you know God like that? Do you know that he's the kind of dad who loves you, who you can count on, who wants to take care of you, the Israelites that Isaiah was preaching to had forgotten. They, they weren't letting God carry them. In verse 8, God pleads with them to remember, to remember the former things, those of long ago. When He had rescued them from Egypt, when He had brought them safely through the Red Sea, when He had chosen them to be His own people and, and He'd come to dwell among them and He'd brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. I am God and there is no other, he continues. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. Are you concerned about the future? None of our idols can tell us the future. Nothing that we're tempted to cling to instead of to God can tell us what tomorrow holds. And if tomorrow holds trouble, nothing we have can adequately protect us from it, no matter what the TV commercials say. Only God knows what's coming. 
And so only God can be trusted when he reassures us that he can carry us through whatever is to come. In verse 11, God then reiterates his plan back then to save his people through the hand of Cyrus the Persian. From the east, I summon a bird of prey, he says, from a far off land, a man who will fulfill my purpose. And then here comes the most amazing part. Even though God's people remain faithless and rebellious and committed to their idolatry, God in his grace will nonetheless save them anyway. Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Amazing. God has pleaded with his people to trust him and they have refused. But he is committed to saving them nonetheless. He's so good, so loving, so merciful that he can't let his people go. And if you know the rest of the story, he did bring his people back from exile despite their arguments and their faithless rebellion against him. But because they refused to give up their idols and to trust him wholeheartedly, things did not go nearly as well for them as it could have. So how about us? How much will we trust? Will we insist on carrying burdensome idols? Or will we let go and and then let the true God, our God, carry us? When a traveler in the early days of the West came to the Mississippi, he discovered there was no bridge there yet. But uh, fortunately, it was winter, and the great river was sheeted over with ice. But the traveler was afraid to trust himself to it. He didn't know how thick it was, and, but he had to get across. So finally, with infinite caution, he, he crept on his hands and knees, and he managed to get halfway across the river. And then he heard singing from behind. And, and he cautiously turned, and there... Out of the dusk behind him came another traveler driving a four-horse load of coal over the ice, (laughs) singing as he went. Which kind of church are we going to be as we begin another Advent? As we prepare to discern the plans that God has for us in the future? I think this story captures well the two choices before us. Let's pray. God, thank you for getting a hold of Isaiah the prophet, a man of passion, a man of intelligence, an incredible poet, and for using him to express your heart for us to call us back to yourself. Um, Thank you that you love us so much and you only long to give us good. You know what we need, you know what we want and you're crying out to us. And God, we can't let these idols go by ourselves. Um, They grow roots into our heart. 
and they're painful to extract, especially since you don't often offer us Novocaine. But I pray in your mercy and in your grace that you would pry them out of us and replace them with a deep trust on you and on your goodness. Help us to know how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen.